Good evening, Hope Church. Can you open up your Bible to the book of Calvinism, chapter 2? We are going to be uh, doing an election today. I started the sentence and realized that we don't have a book, so I just made a hilarious joke. If you didn't laugh, we took down your name. Uh, good, good evening, everybody. Really good to see you. If you're new or if you're visiting, we're glad to have you among us. Like Keith said, I'm, I'm Tom. I pastor alongside him and our other elder, Vic, who is also sick. So we're praying for him and trusting that the Lord is gracious. Um, we are doing our uh, short series, five points through the, the doctrine known as Calvinism, which is uh, really just uh, shorthand language for how the Bible speaks of how you get saved, why you're saved, how God saved us. It's called soteriology, coming from the, uh, uh, the, the word sotia, which means save, or salvation, and ology being the study of. So we're studying what the Bible says about that moment of our salvation about uh, uh, why we're saved, how we get saved, by what means does God save us. So, of course, this has uh, really um, been systematized. It was um, by the followers of John Calvin, who lived in the 1500s. Uh, his followers systematized this, and as it sort of got some pushback from what we call the remonstrance in uh, the Netherlands, they formulated five points. They didn't really agree with this Calvinistic teaching or this reformed theology around salvation. They pushed back on five main points. They said, first of all, we don't really believe that mankind is so fallen in sin that they can't choose of their own free will to believe in God. God, uh, and believe and repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they said, we don't believe that God from eternity past, uh, before he made the foundations of the world, chose precisely and exactly who would be saved uh, in order uh, for them to then be saved in time. We don't believe that. Uh, thirdly, they said, we don't believe that when Jesus went forward to the cross, that he was only dying for those pre-chosen people. But we believe that the heart of God, the most deep down part of the heart of God was saying, I'm killing my son here as a sacrifice for everybody. That was the intention of the heart of the Father. And then they said, fourthly, that, that when the grace of God comes into your life to bring you to salvation, it's not, it's not an overwhelmingly sovereign power that makes you a Christian. Rather, the grace... Good evening, Hope Church. Can you open up your Bible to the book of Calvinism, chapter 2? We are going to be uh, doing an election today. I started the sentence and realized that we don't have a book, so I just made a hilarious joke. If you didn't laugh, we took down your name. Uh, good, good evening, everybody. Really good to see you. If you're new or if you're visiting, we're glad to have you among us. Like Keith said, I'm, I'm Tom. I pastor alongside him and our other elder, Vic, who is also sick. So we're praying for him and trusting that the Lord is gracious. Um, we are doing our uh, short series, five points through the, the doctrine known as Calvinism, which is uh, really just uh, shorthand language for how the Bible speaks of how you get saved, why you're saved, how God saved us. It's called soteriology, coming from the, uh, uh, the, the word sotia, which means save, or salvation, and ology being the study of. So we're studying what the Bible says about that moment of our salvation about uh, uh, why we're saved, how we get saved, by what means does God save us. So, of course, this has uh, really um, been systematized. It was um, by the followers of John Calvin, who lived in the 1500s. Uh, his followers systematized this, and as it sort of got some pushback from what we call the remonstrance in uh, the Netherlands, they formulated five points. They didn't really agree with this Calvinistic teaching or this reformed theology around salvation. They pushed back on five main points. They said, first of all, we don't really believe that mankind is so fallen in sin that they can't choose of their own free will to believe in God uh, and believe and repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they said, we don't believe that God from eternity past, uh, before he made the foundations of the world, chose precisely and exactly who would be saved uh, in order uh, for them to then be saved in time. We don't believe that. Uh, thirdly, they said, we don't believe that when Jesus went forward to the cross, that he was only dying for those pre-chosen people. But we believe that the heart of God, the most deep down part of the heart of God was saying, I'm killing my son here as a sacrifice for everybody. That was the intention of the heart of the Father. And then they said, fourthly, that, that when the grace of God comes into your life to bring you to salvation, it's not, it's not an overwhelmingly sovereign power that makes you a Christian. 
Rather, the grace of God cooperates with the will of men so that you choose of your own will to become a Christian. And lastly, they said, because uh, there is not an eternal choice, there is not an immutable regeneration that makes you saved. Rather, it's a part of your will. Because of all of that, your free will is still able at some point during the Christian life to be organically ruined by sin or your choice and your decision can change one day and you'll find that you are not a Christian anymore. These five points were pushed back on with what the acronym has been called TULIP. T, total depravity. We cannot choose Christ because we are so dead in sin. That's not an option for our will. That's what we looked at two weeks ago as we started the series. U is what we're looking at tonight, which is unconditional election that God has actually chosen for himself people to be saved. L is what we call limited atonement, or meaning uh, otherwise particular redemption or definite atonement, meaning that God in Christ on the cross was dying for a particular group of people to bring them to salvation. I, in the tulip, is irresistible grace, that when God's grace floods your heart to make you a Christian, he's doing just that. He's making you a Christian, and you believe because of that. Thanks, brother. And then P is perseverance of the saints, that all those who have been chosen, who had bled for, and who are now in Jesus Christ through faith will remain that way, because as uh, uh, Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen? So we're now, this week, looking at unconditional election. And for many people, it has historically been so that these, these doctrines become a, a sort of starting point for exploding and expanding their view of God. That as these doctrines start being put out on the table, you have to wrestle with some very deep foundational questions about how you view God, how you view yourself, in fact, how you view the whole world. I've often said, uh, uh, I'm, I'm speaking after R.C. Sproul, he said it first, but because I say it all the time, I can now just say, I always say that the Calvinism or Reformed theology is more than just five points about what you believe about salvation. It becomes a worldview. Not that you look at everything in life through these five points, but the, the, the connected system of doctrine that make up this reformed theological view of the Bible informs and touches every area of our life. Having a huge, omnipotent, sovereign grace God changes everything. And so I'm praying that that becomes so for you, that this becomes the, a part of the beginning if it's your first time coming across this or if you've butted, up a hen, a butted head up against this sort of thing before, but this series is going to be the time that we get you and you're going to be a five-pointer after this. Whatever it is, we're praying that this would become a, a, moment, a, a beginning of ever-expanding, ever-humbling, continuously motivating theology that you have. So, a definition. We're starting each week with a definition. And this week, our definition for un unconditional election is this. That everybody who will be in heaven will be there because God the Father chose them individually in his Son for salvation. And that he chose them before the beginning of time. And that this choice of his has no reason based on the person being chosen, but only based on God's own free choice that and his passion to see himself glorified. That everybody who will be in heaven will be there because God chose that person before the foundations of the world and that choosing was not motivated by something he foresaw in you in the future, but simply based on his own desire to glorify himself. So we're going to be looking at tonight. So can you please open up to Ephesians chapter 1? We're just going to go to the, the main texts tonight. Uh, all the, the classic texts that you might find if you're um, going through your systematic theology. And of course, there is a, might have been on your chair, I'm pretty sure they were just on the door out in the front uh, table. There will be these uh, uh, study notes that we're preparing for each of these five studies so that you can take them. They can uh, prepare, uh, uh, form the base of some kind of personal study later, but also maybe Bible studies that you're going to do with people or uh, uh, sit-down conversations that you want to have with your family or whatever it's going to be. I know that uh, James's um, uh, fellowship group is going to be going through this as the term starts out. Nonetheless, there's Bible verses there. There's a chapter in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology to go and find. There's uh, recommended books there, and there's some online lectures and courses with a QR code that you can go and find by scanning that. Those are sort of some of the, the top minimized, boiled down resources that I recommend. 
And if you go into a systematic theology, these, these are the big main texts that they're going to go to and show to us the reality of God's prior choice for us in salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to see the reality and the purpose of God's sovereign choice in salvation. Read with me in verse 3 through 6. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So starting out already, unless you put on layers and layers of dishonest, eisegetical uh, 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 lenses over your eyes, you can already see there that Paul unapologetically says that election is something that God has done, he chose us, predestined us, that's all God. And it's not something that he's quite apologetic about that he might get to in in chapter 9 of Ephesians and he'll say it really quickly and then move on so that no one really gets what he's saying. He's starting out the book with it. He's reminding them, the reason you're Christians, the reason we praise God for the gospel, the reason we're gathered, the reason you're reading this book is because God is a sovereign savior who has chosen us. And it's not an apologetic uh, doctrine either that he's, that he's inching away from. He's glad about it. He's praising God for it because he recognizes his own depravity and therefore he knows without God's sovereign election. As, as Spurgeon said, if God did not choose me before the foundations of the world, he definitely would have chosen me afterwards. It has to be election. So in verse 3 we see, Paul say that salvation, or what he calls every spiritual blessing, starting from your regeneration, starting with your faith, those things, including those, including your perseverance to the end, every spiritual blessing you get in Christ. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So there is no spiritual blessing from God outside of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 4 shows us that you are in Christ to receive all of those blessings because God chose you in Christ. So verse 4 says... (coughs) even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So you were chosen in Christ to receive all of the benefits of salvation in Christ, and that choice happened before the foundation of the world. It's inescapable, this reality of God's sovereign choice. Now, some people want to look at that and say, well, the choice that's being made is not choosing you to become, to, to be in Christ, Rather, what God is doing is choosing those, right? He's looking down the tunnel of time and he's choosing those who are in Christ. What we're going to see already in other verses is that that being in Christ is given by God very explicitly in places like 2 Timothy 1, where we'll go now. Uh, But already what you see is that uh, in verse 5 that we read and in verse 11, he's not talking about a, a nameless group that he's really, what, what these Armenian theologians will say, that God is electing Christ, and anyone who gets themselves into Christ, therefore, are in the election. They are elect because they're in him. They're not in him because they're elect. Well, Paul is uh, seeing that we are actually individually predestined because in verse 5, he says, he predestined us. In verse 11, he will say, we who have been predestined according to his will, So in fact, this choice is a choice of individuals who are in Jesus, that that is, that his choice is to make us in Jesus. Verse 5, of course, then again says, he predestined us. Predestining meaning that God uh, determines your destination, your eternal destination we're talking of here, your eternal destination is determined by God before the foundations of the world. Therefore, pre, beforehand, destination. Your destination is set. That for Christians, everybody who will find themselves in heaven, we have said, will be there because God chose them before the foundation of the world, that they will go to heaven. 
So verse 5, we've been predestined us, uh, he has predestined us for adoption, which starts with faith and regeneration, through Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And now he starts working out the reason that you got chosen. That we, we will never be able to know why God chooses some individuals and not others, but what we can know is the ultimate reason that God chooses people. And that is that he is passionate to glorify his grace. He's passionate to glorify above everything else he does. And we'll look at this when we look at Romans 9. Is that he is impassioned. He is zealous to do one thing above every other thing. And that one thing is glorify himself because he is the one being who is worthy of being so glorified. All of the world is centered around God's central desire to glorify himself because he's worthy. If you don't like that, and if you start uh, shifting in your seat and being uncomfortable with the language of God glorifying himself, then you need to go back to last week in total depravity and realize that the effects of sin are so deep into us that as, the closer we get to understanding the truth of God's person from Scripture, the more repulsed we are going to be unless the Spirit is bringing us to humility. The scripture shows us that the reason God chooses is because he is seeking to glorify himself through his gracious word. And all those born again of God are slowly but surely brought closer and closer to kneeling at that statement and saying, amen, let it be so, that is my desire. I am a child of this father and with Paul I say, blessed be God because he chose us. He's allowed to do that. He's able to do that. He's powerful to do that. He ought to do that. He is God. I am not. That ought to be the heart of every Christian. So verse 6 shows us the ultimate purpose is the praise of his glorious grace. Or more literally, it could even just be to praise his grace's glory. Verse 6, read it again. To the praise of his glorious grace, with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So what is unescapable at this point is that you are saved, if you are saved, you are saved because God chose to save you in Christ before the foundations of the world, so that you would glorify him for his grace. And at this point, we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you struggle finding Tim, uh, 2 Timothy, it's just after 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, sort of uh, coming out of the gates of verse 8, where he's, uh, it's in a whole context about him glorifying God, but, but he, 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 verse, verse 9 is, is sort of just a big brackets about who God is. So he's saying, for God, comma, who saved us and called us, to a holy calling, not because of our works. So he's talking about God, who is the God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. So that straight out of the gates, every Christian needs to know this. We are saved by grace, not because of good works, not because of our deeds, but God was gracious and saved sinners who owed him an eternal debt. That's where he started. God was gracious, not giving us what we deserved, but, so, not because of works, but instead because, now if you're an Arminian at this point, which means if you're a non-Calvinist, you want to say, not because of your works, but he called you and saved you because of your faith. Right? Not because of your works, but because of your faith. You're justified by faith alone, and your faith, your, your, your undoing choosing... Okay, not that you worked something, but you simply leaned on Jesus Christ by your own free will. That will is the reason that you are saved. But Paul actually goes a step further back and doesn't just talk about the fact that it's not your works, it's your faith. In fact, he says, it's not your works, it's the grace of God that he gave you before the foundation of the world. So, uh, but... Verse 9 continues, because of his own purpose and grace. So his purpose appointed you, and his grace was to undeservedly bless us. That was his appointment. His grace 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the foundation, uh, sorry, before the ages began. So his purpose appointed us and his grace was given to us before time began. So Paul is very clearly saying here, and he'll go on, verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. So, so there is an eternal grace that in real time, when Jesus appeared, the grace of God was manifesting, becoming visible. It was becoming clear. And of course, personally, you enter that at the point of your salvation. However, the first installment of God's grace was not in the incarnation, was not at the cross when, Je when Jesus came. The first installment of God's grace, of which the appearance of Jesus was a manifestation, was that before the foundation of the world, God made you in Christ Jesus. He gave you his purpose and he gave you his grace in Christ before time began. So we can read it again, verse nine, uh, finishing verse 8 into verse 9 and 10. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He saved us because of his grace, which he gave us before time. So your salvation in time happened as a part of a long, eternal plan that started in the mind of God. So what we now see is that there's, there's two fundamental groups of people. <coughs> that as God looks at the world, he sees two groups of people. He sees people who are elect or non-elect. They're the two categories to God, the chosen and the non-chosen. Those who from eternity past were given grace and a calling in Jesus Christ and those who were not given grace and a calling in Jesus Christ. Those who were given to Christ before the foundation of the world and those who were not given to Christ but left in their sinfulness. So there's two groups of people that is invisible to us until people come to faith. It is invisible to us, but it is known by God, these two groups of people. John chapter 10. Can you please go to John chapter 10? The fourth book in the New Testament. In John chapter 10, we have Jesus speaking to his detractors about... Uh, what he's here to do, why he came. We're going to look at this next week when we look at limited atonement and who Jesus died for. But in John chapter 10, we, we see that in Jesus' words, he views that there are two groups of people in the world, two groups of people, some of which are standing in front of him right now as he's speaking this. And he says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. means that Jesus is seeing two groups, two groups of people in the world, those who are his own, whom he knows, and those whom are not his own, those who he does not know. This is more than simply knowledge and an intellectual fact. We're told in John 2, the same author says that he knew the hearts of every man, but the point is that he is not in a relational knowledge with them. They are not his own. They've not been given to him by the Father. Or you can look at verse 25, uh, halfway through verse 25, into verse 27 of John 10. It says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So he's battling unbelief at the moment, remember? He's doing miracles, he's giving sermons, and the people, by and large, are, are, are believing and wanting to follow and glorify him. But the leaders are refusing to bend the knee. They're refusing to accept who he says he is. And so he says, look, the, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. It's very clear from my lived miracles that I am who I am saying I am. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. So that to Jesus, and we want to have the same theological view as Jesus, to Jesus there are those who are the sheep, 
those who are his own, those who are belonging to him, those who will hear his voice, who he knows and therefore will receive eternal life. And then there is the group that none of that applies to. They are not his own. They are not his sheep. They do not know him. He does not know them. He will, they will not believe in him, but they will reject him and he will not give to them eternal life. Jesus says it backwards than we would normally think. We think that Jesus would say, because you don't believe, you will not become one of my sheep. Which would be to put the person's decision and will prior and God's making them and adopting them as a sheep into his fold as secondary. However, Jesus says it is exactly the opposite. You will not believe, you are currently not believing me because you are not in a category determined by the Father called sheep, those given to me and uh, before the foundations of the world. Again, we see this in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. So in John, you can just go uh, right and you will find yourself in the book of Acts chapter 13, verse 48. If you don't have a Bible and you would uh, like a Bible, we have free Bibles on the back table just before you uh, uh, leave the building tonight. You can grab one. That's our gift to you. Please take one. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, no doubt this is familiar with you if you're an uh, online debating Calvinist. This is one of the, the ones you have on your clipboard ready to uh, paste at any given moment. Um, another, another highlight verse, Acts 13 verse 48. This is, this is uh, the missionaries preaching the gospel. And what happens is this, when the Gentiles heard this, that is, that he's, uh, uh, Paul is saying that you Jews are rejecting your Messiah, stuff ya, I'm going to go and preach to the Gentiles now and they will listen. And the Gentiles hearing that said, that's great, they start rejoicing. So verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You want that to read, if you're not a Calvinist, you want that to read that those who believed were in that moment appointed to eternal life. I've heard it said, you know, God has voted yes and the devil has voted no and now you've got to cast your vote and that'll be the deciding vote. What will you do? You need to appoint yourself to eternal life. Or you need to let God appoint you to eternal life. But just in this haphazard way, as he's just writing, what, writing down what happened in that city. He simply said, those who had prior been appointed to eternal life believed in that moment. Those who were chosen, those who were elect, those who were Christ's sheep, heard the voice of the good shepherd through the under-shepherd, the apostle, heard the voice, believed the gospel, followed him, and were given eternal life in John 10 language. Acts 13, 48, again, shows us that appointment comes first into the category of elect or chosen, and therefore belief comes. So to summarize our first point, the reality of election, we can say that we are chose, uh, uh, we, we see that these two categories exist in the Bible. As long as the mind of God has been planning salvation, he has been planning it with a particular group in mind that he calls his sheep or his bride or his church, the elect. This, this becomes very personal, that you are, you are not loved by God with an infinite love because you finally decided to say yes to his proposal, but that he has loved you personally, your name in the palm of his son, your name written down on the covenant of redemption of eternity past, your face in the mind of the father as he created the world to have you with him in eternity, glorifying his son for his sacrifice. He did all of that with the chosen people in union with his son in infinite covenant love with the father. The reality is that there are the chosen, the not chosen, the elect, the non-elect, the appointed, the not appointed, the Christ's own, the not Christ's own, Christ's sheep or those who are not Christ's sheep, what we call elect, and therefore we have this doctrine called election. <clears throat> so let's remind ourselves of our definition from earlier. What we mean by unconditional election is that everyone who will be in heaven will be there because God the Father chose them individually in his Son for salvation and that he chose them before the, the beginning of time, and that his choice has no reason based on the person, 
but only based on his own free choice and his passion to glorify himself. So now we get to the unconditional part of it. The motivation, the reason that God elects is unconditional as it pertains to us and is only conditioned by his own purpose to glorify himself. So can you turn with me to Romans chapter 9? Now, in Romans chapter 9, Paul has just spent eight chapters uh, expositing the the gospel from the Old Testament passages. And what he's been showing is that God is glorious, he is saving, he is sovereign. However, one of the begging questions, especially for the Jews, the begging questions, as as you hear the gospel proclaimed, as Paul uh, outlines all of the the eternal purposes of the gospel from past to future, the, the purposes of the gospel and the Messiah through the whole Old Testament history, he's done all of that. Now, the Jews are wondering, how can we amen everything you've just said without, without uh, promoting the idea that God has failed to accomplish his promises? Because he made so many promises to Abraham about his offspring called the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites, Israel, whatever we want to call them. He made so many promises to them that now if we see them by and large rejecting the gospel and mostly the Gentiles coming into the church, how can we amen all of that without saying that God has failed in his purpose to save his people? Paul says, very good question. And he answers it in Romans 9. And his basic way of answering it as a summary of Romans 9 is to say that God's true purposes have not failed Because if you think that way about Old Testament Israel and about them rejecting the Messiah, if you think they're not all saved, not even the majority of them are saved, therefore God's purpose has failed, you actually, we need to go right back down to the base of your understanding of God and his people. It has never been that those born of Abraham, who are Abraham's offspring, Those Jews who were born of Abraham ethnically, according to the flesh, there has been no time in biblical history when that has been the same as being spiritual offspring of Abraham and therefore being saved. That if we're reading the Old Testament rightly, you're supposed to see right from the beginning of the Bible, but especially from the beginning of the Israelite people, that God was always choosing out of ethnic Israel a true spiritual elect Israel. So that he's going to say later there is Israel, but not all of Israel are true Israel. So you actually, Paul would be saying to the Jews, you just need to fix the whole way you were thinking about God and his people. There's those who are sons of Abraham and therefore available to them with the promises of the land and the covenant, but that did not mean that they were predestined for salvation. That was never the case. And to prove that, he goes straight back to the first three generations of the nation. And he's saying, right from the beginning of the nation of Israel, God was choosing some and rejecting others. So, that's the outset of Romans 9. Read verse 6. You go and find it in your Bible. Romans 9 verse 6 says, (coughs) It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You can hear him saying that not all those who descend ethnically, biologically from Israel, which was uh, Abraham's grandson, not all those who come from Abraham's line are true spiritual Israel. There was always the Israel within the Israel. That's what verse 6 says. And if you don't believe me, you can hear Paul saying, if if you don't believe me that every generation had God's chosen people and God's non-chosen people in Israel, let's just go back to the first three generations. So let's start with Abraham. He's generation zero, right? And uh, he he obviously was elected. That's a win right out of the bat. God elects those who will be saved. Abraham was not a Jew before God chose him. He was actually a pagan. He was living in the land of Ur. He was probably worshiping the Babylonian gods. He was not a godly man. God chose him, appeared to him, spoke to him, and just said, get up, get out, I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to save the world through one of your descendants. 
Totally free election. Now, maybe, maybe the Armenian wants to say, look, God had to start somewhere. That's not really fair. Maybe, we're not told, maybe he went and spoke to other people, put the option out. They said no with their free will. He finally found Abraham, okay? And that's why he started there. No, but sure, let, let's give that. I guess God had to start somewhere when he was creating the, the nation. So generation zero is just a given. He was chosen. And the question really is the children of Abraham. Paul's proving that just because you're the children of Abraham doesn't mean you're chosen by God. Every generation has the chosen and the rejected. So now let's read verse 7 and 9. This is generation 1. Gener- uh, Abraham's first lot of children. Verse 7 says, Not all are children of Abraham, think spiritually. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So there's a difference between being a child and a descendant. A child of Abraham is a language of faith, a spiritual notion. Not all who are children of Abraham spiritually, because they are his offspring, but, verse 7 says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's a quote from Genesis. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So, what we've seen just there is, is Paul, Paul quoting the Old Testament and just saying, we all know that Isaac was the one who was pr- the promised seed. The promise came from God to Abraham. You're going to miraculously have a baby uh, next year through Sarah. I will come back and through him, the promises of salvation will come. So Paul's saying there was a child of promise, Isaac, and a child of the flesh, Ishmael. That was the baby that Abraham said, look, it's getting on. My wife's super old. I know the angel told us we were going to have a baby, but my wife is agreeable to this. I'm going to go and sleep with her servant and have a baby, and we'll just count that one as good. It didn't count. That is what Paul calls the child of the flesh. And so Paul's just proving, just because you have Abraham's genes doesn't mean you're a spiritual descendant of his, because both Ishmael and Isaac had his, had his DNA, but only one of them was of the promise. Only one of them was saved. Only one of them was chosen. So that's what he says there. From the very first generation, when there was only two people who could call themselves descendants of Abraham, one of them was not chosen. 50% of all of Abraham's children at that point were non-elect. The other one was chosen. That's pretty staggering odds. But, I think Paul gets this. You could say that one of them was a miraculous baby, Isaac, born to a woman almost 100 that had never had children before, to a man that was almost 100. And one of them was born sinfully, out of wedlock, Ishmael. So of course one was chosen and the other one wasn't. Okay, all right, you can hear Paul saying, that's fine, let's, let's keep going, but just let's already establish when Abraham had two children, one of them was chosen, one of them was not. That's at least what we can establish there. But you think it's because they were, there was something in them, it wasn't because of an unconditional election of God. That's fine. Generation three. This is the generation of the children of Isaac, who is Jacob, whose name becomes Israel, and Esau, the hairy guy, who Elmo is taken after. Red and hairy was Esau. So generation two of all of Abraham's children, and this, these verses, 10 through 13, is the rear naked choke. Any Arminian still in the ring with Paul at this point is KO'd after verse 13. They don't even have time to tap out. Look at verse 9. Uh, sorry, verse 10. Not only so, so that generation counts, but not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived. So this is now the, the next generation, when Isaac's wife, Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who does the calling, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Paul then quotes Genesis, Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated. The bell rings. You cannot escape that grip. Paul shows us, okay, so none of the the arguments you might make against generation number one works. 
because they're not the same dad but different mums. They're the same mum. In fact, they're not even just the same mum. They're the same womb. They're twins. You can't get out. There is no reason in the children that there is any human element of, of who would be chosen and who would not. In fact, what he says here in verse 12, he says, the older will in fact serve the younger. That is to say, it's the younger who will get the blessing and be saved. The older is the one who will be cut off from God. So, so not only is it not because of the human normal way of thinking, like, yeah, well, one was truly born of Abraham, the other one came from another woman. No, same mum, same womb, both born in the, at the same time. But even then you could say, well, one of them was born first, and it would make sense that it was based on that, not some eternal decree of God. And at that point, Paul is saying, no, God intentionally subverted the reality, the, the normal expectation of younger serving older, of older getting salvation and promises, he intentionally chooses the younger before they were born, so it was unconditional, from the same womb, no difference between the two of them, saying, I have loved one of them eternally, and I have not loved or hated one of them eternally. So that, Paul says, so that his purpose in election may stand, or may be magnified, may be clarified. In other words, he elects this way against all human natural thinking. He chooses this way simply so that his purpose of election, which is glorifying himself, would be starkly clarified and magnified. In other words, when you read Genesis 18 and 19 and, uh, and, and following, through your Bible reading plan, which if you're going through the one Hope's been putting forward, that was this week. Great providence, preparing us for this sermon. Genesis 18 and 19, still time to catch up if you're still in Genesis 3. It's all good. When you read that, Paul's saying you're supposed to think, wow, God has made so clear the fact that he chooses people for salvation based on nothing in us and only based on his own self-glorification. That's what we're supposed to think when we read about God's choice like that. Look at verse 15 and 16. God answering the question, uh, sorry, Paul answering the question, doesn't that sound unfair? He says, no, verse 15, because... He says to Moses, right, let's, let's look again at another historical reality. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is saying grace is real grace. It's utter grace. It's sheer grace. It's unmingled, pure grace. The only reason people are saved, going back to 2 Timothy, is not because he was gracious and you were willing, but because he was gracious through and through to his mortal enemies. It's all grace. He has mercy when he wants to have mercy. He had compassion on the people he wanted to have compassion. That is the determining ultimate factor in who goes to heaven and who doesn't. And if at that point we want to stand up and say, that doesn't sound fair, that doesn't sound fair, Paul's going to almost choke as he says, you want fair? As soon as you start talking about what is fair... And, well, hey, if it's all up to God, if he's so free in his grace, shouldn't he then save everybody? If he can do it and he can choose anybody, shouldn't he choose everybody? But as soon as we start using language like should and ought and what is fair, you've stopped talking about the realm of grace. There is no room for language of you deserve to, you ought to, you need to, you should. If you're going to be fair, there's no language, room for that language when we're talking about grace. As soon as you use that language, you've departed from grace and you've gotten back to works and contracts. So verse 16 says, therefore, it depends not on the human will or on the human exertion. So not on your works, not even on your choice, but on him who has compassion, on God who has mercy, rather. <coughs> Everybody agrees 
As we talk now, and we've, we've maybe you're tracking so far, I agree. God has an ultimate desire to glorify himself, and to achieve that desire, he has chosen certain people and passed over other people. He has an elect people. But what do we do with those passages? And isn't it true that God has, in his heart and in his word, language such as Ezekiel 33, verse 11? If you're an Arminian here tonight, I already got you. I got it here before you need to say anything. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. This is, the, this is the frequent one that comes back. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Everybody has to deal with texts like that. And, 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 and I believe it is the, the reformed uh, uh, position that is able to deal with texts like that. Of course, we all need to agree with every passage in the Bible, and we establish and we agree that God has in his heart a revealed way of saying, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I'm not getting my jimmies out of sending people to hell. I desire, therefore, and genuinely command all to repent and to believe and come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who I have slain and raised for your sake. However, everybody across the board, Calvinist and non, need to answer the question, why then do people still die? It, or, sorry, die in their sin. Why do the wicked still die? Why does God send people to hell? Unless you're willing to say that God sends no one to hell, uh, then you have to say that while God does desire that the wicked turn and repent, yet something overrides that desire because not all wicked people repent. And at this point is where the Arminian theologian wants to step in and say, the ultimate desire, which overrules the desire that he wants everybody saved, the ultimate desire is that he wants to respect human freedom of will. So while if it was all up to God, he, he would save all, his love is for all, his, his election is for all that will believe, yet because his ultimate desire is to be seen as not a robotic uh, 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 programming God, not a, not a puppeteering God, he wants to respect the human will, and therefore he does not save all. Unbiblical, weak, unsatisfying. If I'm in hell at about the million year mark, I'm going to say, you know what? Could have done without my free will. Don't feel thankful that you left that intact, Lord God. Just choose me. Doesn't actually end up upholding the, the love of God to the creature like they want to. What we have to realize is, and, and we have to land on this, that God does have an overarching desire that overrules his desire that all would be saved. And that overarching desire is what we see in Romans 9, the desire to glorify himself maximally. Not just more than the next angel getting glorified, but glorified maximally. Therefore, God has designed the world, including who will be saved, with a plan to glorify ultimately and maximally himself in his own wisdom and sovereignty. This is what Romans 9 says in verse 20. Uh, and 21. Verse 20 says, sort of halfway through, should, should we say to God, if we're uncomfortable with his choice in this, should we say, why have you made me like this? But verse 21, Paul says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of that same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Yes, the clay has no petition rights. It has no rights of appeal to say, I want it to be a fragrance urn instead of an ash urn. It is made what the clay maker wants it to be. And therefore, he says, uh, verse 22, what if God, now he poses, it as, as, he poses the reality as a question to sort of get us thinking. What if the ultimate desire of God creating the world is not that he would have everybody or the maximum amount of people saved in heaven glorifying him, but that those who are in heaven glorifying him are glorifying him for every faculty of his nature being maximally shown. So this ultimate desire is not maximum people, but his own maximum glory. That's supposed to hit hard. He expects us to have to wrestle with that. That's why he spends a whole chapter doing it. Verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and make his power, uh, sorry, and, uh, and make known his power. Okay, so God is not sorry about his wrath and his power. He doesn't just want to glorify his grace. He wants to glorify all of his attributes. Therefore, he passes over some to send them to hell to maximally glorify his wrath. 
desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, he has endured with much patience those vessels of wrath who are prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What if God's ultimate desire, friends, is not to save the maximum amount of people, or not just to glorify his mercy, but to glorify all that he is, to leave some to go to hell, to, show, to make the, the dark backdrop of judgment and wrath and power, so that before that, the shining diamond of his grace and mercy might be all the more maximalized and enjoyed. That's why God chose the way that he chose. This is so offensive to human pride, and yet so uplifting to God. If you're ever going to apologize for the Bible, it's here. But if we hold fast to this, we find ourselves unapologetic for what the Word of God says, and preserved in a big God, ever-expanding, God-centric theology. And that's where we find ourselves tonight, with unconditional election. <clears throat> Toss it up whether or not we're going to do Romans 8, but it is right there on the, on the, the previous page. So let's just, not the whole Romans 8, but just go to verse, go to verse 28 to 30. Uh, we'll be brief. <coughs> At this point, an objection might come that, that God does choose, and let's say they've just not listened to anything that we've just gone through, right? Yeah, you didn't get any of that, and, and you still want to say, no, God chooses based on the faith that he saw in us from beforehand. Let me read Romans 8, verse 28 to 30. We know that for all those, uh, sorry, for, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Now, we're going to look at this next week and, I think, every week to come. This is called the golden chain of redemption. The, the, the five points of Calvinism are all found in here. It's Pauline theology. But what people might think is that when, in verse 29, when he says, those whom he foreknew he predestined, they think that that foreknowledge means know about their faith beforehand. He knew beforehand that they would believe, therefore he predestined them to have saving faith in Jesus and be saved, which ultimately means, first, right out of the gate, we know, means the election of God does nothing. If somebody's already come over to your house and then you invite them, I mean, it's nice because now they're not uh, uh, imposing, but it's still technically ineffectual, pointless. It's just wordplay. If he sees that they chose and therefore sends the choosing to something that is not only is it uh, 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 making it ineffectual, but it also means that uh, salvation is ultimately decided by the individual. I don't see how we can read any of those other passages tonight and come away with that, nor can we hold total depravity and believe that. But secondly, it means that God learned something. This needs to be written down in the margins of your notes as a heresy. Not meaning that if you deny what we're saying in total tonight, that you're unsaved, but meaning that this is getting dangerously close to having a poor, unsaving view of God. That is to say, that if we believe that God, in eternity past, was loving his, his cup of joe on his porch, and then decided that they're going to create the world, and in creating the world, they sort of wondered, will people remain in an upright way and so they look into the future the father son and holy spirit and learn that no they won't and so they say well if we send one of us to die will anybody believe and they look further down the corridor of time and say you know what there will be some there'll be some who choose to believe let's choose them for salvation you have i know that's a caricature but it's not that far off what you have is at some point in eternity past god gaining knowledge He's opening up the book of the future and learning what people will do. That is a reality that begins and originates outside of himself, who is the first mover of all reality. You can't have a theologically robust doctrine of God and agree with that. You can't agree that God is immutable and unchangeable and perfect in his knowledge and nature, and yet he gains knowledge by learning the future. 
The future is simply God's decree. He knows because he determined what the future will be. He doesn't determine what the future will be because he read it in a, in a book about the future. So we cannot have that God is learning. It's also just incompetent exegesis. It's uh, taken an English word saying known. See, foreknown. Doesn't it sound like he just knew beforehand? It's uh, incompetent exegesis. That is not the meaning of that word, especially as we look through the Bible and see God's usage of the word to know. When we read here, he foreknew. It is not simply that he, he understood an intellectual fact beforehand, but when we are speaking of God's covenant relationship to people, the word know really means love is in relationship with or choose. It sounds like a stretch to just say no means choose so Calvinists win. But we're not. We're saying in the Bible language, when God's speaking of covenant people, the word knowledge carries all the connotations of acknowledgement, of choosing, of loving, and being in relationship with. First of all, Genesis chapter 4 tells us that Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. That's pretty deep intellectual knowledge. He's doing that with his mind. He had some powers. We know what's going on there. He knew his wife in an intimate, relational, loving way, in a way that he knew nobody else, and it produced a pregnancy. Or we can see in Genesis 18, verse 19, God is speaking of his son, of his chosen man, Abraham. Some uh, of your translations will say, Abraham, I have chosen. Others will say, Abraham, I have known. It says this, I have known Abraham, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him. Sorry, that. that Two alternate beginnings of the same verse. For I have known Abraham, or for I have chosen Abraham, that he may command his children after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness. In other words, God is saying, there's somebody in the world to perpetuate the righteousness of God, and it's the one that I have chosen. Well, the same word can be translated, it's the one who I have known. What, did God not know anybody else on earth? Like he had a detailed book of intellectual facts about Abraham and no one else? He knew everybody in a sovereign sense, but he knew only Abraham in a choosing covenantal sense. Amos chapter 3 verse 2 says the same thing. He's speaking to Israel saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. It cannot mean that he only knew about them, that he only had eternal, infinite, intricate knowledge of that, that land and nation because God has exhaustive knowledge of all things and every family on earth. So he has to mean, and he does mean, in the Hebrew covenantal sense, you only have I chosen and loved and been in relationship with. He says the same thing in Psalm 1 verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Does God not know the way of the wicked? Of course he does, but not covenantally, lovingly, and intimately. Therefore, when we look at... <coughs> When we look at, uh, Ro uh, where are we, Romans 8, and it says that he's foreknowing people and then predestining those people towards heaven through adoption in Jesus. He is not simply those whom I've known about. Rather, he is saying those who I have known in an intimate, relational, loving sense compared to everybody else. I didn't know everybody this way. Them I have loved, those I have hated. As a chosen, elect people who are given to Christ, given grace, those who are the, the, the Christ's own. All of that is language of those who God began a relationship with before the foundations of the world by choosing them in his son. So at this point, we ask the question, will you bend the knee to believe and love with Paul this doctrine and say, blessed be God for his sovereignty in salvation. And for anybody tonight who is unsure of your placement with Christ, where Paul says every spiritual blessing is given in Christ, if you are not in him, you have no spiritual blessing. If you have not believed in him, you are still condemned. You will go to hell if you die in this state. To you, the question does not need to become, are you elect? Were you chosen before the foundation of the world? We'll get into the mind of God and how do we figure out, was I one of those people given to Christ? That's not up to you to know. That's not up to us to worry about. The question to ask is not, are you elect, but are you a sinner? And if you are a sinner who is guilty before God, who owes God a debt, who is condemned under his law, 
then to you God commands, come to Jesus. He is the free, saving mediator of all sinners who come to him, to God. He will turn away no one who comes to him in faith. And at the point of salvation, this is what John Calvin used to say, the guy who will learn in his theology tonight, he said, don't ask, are you elect? Simply have faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ and find yourself forgiven in his blood. And then you will know that you have been chosen by God to be loved and forgiven from eternity past. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your son. We thank you that from eternity past, you had planned to glorify yourself through saving a sinful people, through the shed blood and resurrection and perfect life and rule and reign forever of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that everybody you've given to him will come to him in time. We thank you that that we come to you and then learn the word which tells us that our coming to you in faith happens because you first loved us. You did not respond to us, but you made us to respond to you. You're the one who loved us first. You're the one who initiated. Had you not done that, Lord, we would all die in our sins. So let let anyone who is a a recent convert or has had a, a, a recent work of God in their life to bring them to salvation, Lord, please let them know the depths of your infinite, eternal love. Anyone, Lord, who is still outside of Jesus, would you give to them faith to believe in this God who is sovereign and powerful and saving, willing to receive any who come to him with repentance and faith. Lord, those of us who have known you a long time and and know this doctrine, would it stir us as a motivation to get to the city, get to our streets, get to the mission field, because your people, your sheep who were given to the Lord Jesus Christ need to hear the gospel and be saved. And wherever we go, we will find those people and see your gospel bear its fruit. Lord God, we submit our lives to you, submit this church to you. May you be glorified through all that we do. And everybody said, Amen.